So, Stephen, how's yes, it going? James. It's going well. What are you going to have for lunch today? I'm going to have the sweet satisfaction of kicking your ass at backgammon. Yeah, you knew why I was after, asking. After we <laughs> after take this, this episode. We're going to play backgammon. We're going to play backgammon and eat lunch just because. Are we going to go for sushi or corned beef hash? Oh, I was uh, imagining we'd go to Le Pen Quotidien to play on a wooden table and maybe get a mouse in the salad because right. I, need, I need some protein. Too bad we can't do like an audio link back to the Freakonomics Radio episode where we discuss the actual mouse in the salad. That was the uh, that was uh, a James Altucher appearance on Freakonomics Radio, and I believe the episode, I if anyone thrilled. wants to look it up, is called I believe it's called Mouse in the Salad. And you made a great point. It wasn't just that you were a witness to the mouse being served in a salad. It wasn't ours. It was a, a woman sitting next to us. Your point was about expansion of, um, you know, when any company's growing fast, things happen. Now, we can't positively identify that that was the cause of that at all. But I did end up interviewing the CEO of the Pen Quotidian after many, many, many weeks of their stonewalling and shutting down and not wanting to respond at all. And that made me want to make the episode also a little bit more about how do you respond to a crisis, which I find to be an interesting question as well. Yeah, no, Alas, a, none of those questions are the question of the day. Here, here's the question I have. What's one or two pieces of advice someone has given you in the past that you know could be like a one-liner that has actually made a difference on how you interpret many situations in life? So I'll give it's you a an, lovely question. I'll give you an example. Uh, let me have an example. So, so, in other words, you're going to answer your own question I'm before answer you my let own me question, answer the question. But I have like okay. two or three of these, okay. but here's one. In other uh, words, I can just sit back and relax. No, no. I'm Should just, I trim I'll my nails a, now? I'll give you a quick example, and then you give me a quick example, because I'm just worried you might not understand what I mean by the question. I did, just for the record. Okay, then you go first. No, no, no. no, no you go, no, no. and Please. let's see. Please. All right, my example is, there's always a good reason and a real reason. Ah, I and like I like that. My, you know, you see who this, said this to you? The, you see, uh, I forget actually who said this to me, but I use it. I because I've plagiarized it so much, I just call it my own. I immediately love that. So, I have to say, and if you th- find it works almost all the time, it's amazing. So it works really well with teenagers because they don't quite mm. have enough experience to know when you're seeing right through the BS. Yeah. So like, if my daughter says, "I really have to do homework at the library today," <laughs> that's a good reason, and I'm all in favor of the good reason. She's going to go to the library. Uh, the real right reason might be, you know, all these boys are there or whatever. I don't know, but that's like the real reason. And, you know, but you can't argue with the good reason if the good reason is good enough. And then as people get older, I used to see this a lot with employees. Oh, we can't do this project. that will take too much time. That's a good reason. The real reason might be they might not want to learn a particular skill or they might not, they might have something else that they want to work on or whatever. So it gets harder and harder as people age to figure out yeah, what the good reason is. Yeah, but that is so useful. Um, it's funny. It reminds me of something my wife often says. I can't think of there's the phrase. There's always my reason and there's your reason. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. My wife and I, she's a great partner, not just family, but like she's a, she doesn't work on my business, quote, business with me um, directly, but we talk a lot about projects and partnerships and whatever, and and I've learned a lot from her. Um, she learned a lot from her father, who was a very good businessman, who had a lot of booms and busts and so on. But that sounds very similar to some advice that she's given me, and, and it's really helpful because, right, you want – and I remember, I remember I made a bad mistake once when I had a job and I didn't want to have it anymore. And I got this other offer that wasn't quite a job. It was more like a project 
but it looked enough like a job that I could tell the boss of the existing job that I was leaving it because I had a new job. Because somehow the project would have been it, it would have been more insulting that it were if it were just a project because I was actually leaving a job at an institution. A mental institution? <laughs> um, a media institution, so very close. So it turns out that the job I had that I was leaving, they were having some budget pressures. And, you know, they were looking for ways to save money. So I basically decided that I was going to go to the boss and say, I have good news and bad news. I said, the bad news is I'm leaving to work on this other project. The good news is I'm going to help with your budget pressures because you're removing my salary from the, the budget. Ah, so you were using the good reason and the real reason as almost like a soft landing to avoid confrontation. And she fair. told me that, that was a, a terrible use. mistake. She said, it's an insult. It's patronizing. Ah, so she, she said, saw through the BS. She said, right, she saw through the BS. And you know what? I didn't listen to her. I did it, and I've regretted it ever since. Now, the guy, the boss there, he was a good guy. You know, it, it didn't cost me anything in the end, but I learned. It would have been the menschier thing to do. It would have been the more solid thing to do to just say, look, um, I appreciate this opportunity, but I found something I want to do more, and I'm going to do it. Period. Period. Not, here's why the thing that I'm doing that's good for me is also good for you. I think that is a, a, a rotten a rotten strategy, and I've never done it since. Right, and so so uh, uh, application of this is what, this this is the advice for people like her, which is, Basically, when someone tries to tell you something that kind of doesn't make you feel so good, he or she is telling you, you know, the good reason. Always look for the real reason. Right. So, and what's what's an example that now of a line you might so, live by like that? So, this is something that happened to me when I was a kid. I was maybe fourteen or so, and uh, I grew up rural, upstate New York, uh, nice environment, and um, I was the youngest in a big family, and my dad, our dad, had died when I was about 10. So now it was me and my mom, and maybe my oldest, my the sister next to me, maybe was still in the house at this point or not, I can't remember. And um, it was a nice community, very rural, where often other men in the community would see a kid like me, whose dad had died, and they'd ask me once in a while to do stuff. Um, you know, maybe go to a ball game once in a while. And fishing was a big thing, right, where I grew up. So there was this one guy who took me routinely on these long fishing trips down to Marblehead, Massachusetts. He had his own boat there, and he kind of did it for hire. And I think whenever he didn't sell a seat on the boat, he would ask me to come along and probably only did it two or three times, and in my mind, it was like this huge, amazing, recurring expedition, because it was, it was really nice of him, and it was, it was a fun thing to do, but there did, was this... Did you have fun with those, or did you ever feel, like, awkward, like... Yeah, uh, I felt awkward. I, I felt a little bit like a charity case. Um, did you cry? No, no, I didn't. Um, I mean, I appreciated it, and I enjoyed it, but I also felt awkward, because, I mean, I wasn't dumb, and I could see that, you know, the reason that I have to go fishing with a stranger is because my dad died, but I'd rather do that you know, then be ignored by the world. So I, I appreciated I ask, it. Can I ask a question? And then I, uh, I want to yeah. hear the one line of, of, of advice or whatever. But uh, do you think now your ability to, when, when you research a book like Freakonomics, what makes you particularly special as a writer and a journalist is you're extremely good at embedding yourself into someone else's life and asking lots of questions and being very interested and being making sure you're not an annoyance while you do this research. Do you think you got it from that time where you were essentially with, in each situation like this, let's say a fishing trip, you're with some sort of authority figure who's allowing you to spend time with him or her, and you're trying to make sure you're not wasting, you don't want them to feel bad about mm. offering this indulgence to you. 
Do you think you kind of built that skill set from the many times you did, which is very different than most young boys. They don't develop that skill set. Maybe so. I don't know. I mean, one characteristic that I've always had that is, that's been described to me from people who know me well that is not necessarily a positive one is, is that I, I'm very, I was very much a pleaser. Like I wanted to do, you know, I, I was not, you know, I wanted to do what pleased people um, because, you know, it's kind of what I was taught in my family. But, but the good and side so, of that has made you like a really good at this embedding style of journalism. Maybe. I, I would argue the thing that's probably been more contributing to that was actually a game and a way of thinking that my dad, uh, interestingly, my dad who died when I was 10, taught me, which was this game we played just, again, probably once or twice, but in my mind, it's like this hugely canonical thing called Powers of Observation. And uh, I remember once he took me to the diner in town and like just having an hour alone with my father and a family of eight was like a big deal. And he'd play this game called Powers of Observation where he'd say, okay, Stevie, I think we were sitting at the counter when it happened, so the tables were kind of behind us. But there was also a mirror like there was in the diner. He said, okay, I want you to just spend the next minute or two just looking around at everything. And I was like, what do you mean? Just look around at everything, pay attention to everything, notice everything. And I did that. And then he said, okay, close your eyes. And then he'd say, okay, the table right there behind you over your left shoulder Who's sitting there? How many people? What are they? And it was like, you know, uh, I think it's an older couple. Have they ordered yet? What are they eating? It's like, I think he had a sandwich. Da, da, da. Okay. And, and, thing, and, and this would go on and on. And it was this thing. He was a newspaper man. And he was a writer. And he taught me, even though I wasn't very good at it, that powers of observation are, it's a great muscle. It's an important muscle, but it's also a muscle, meaning you can develop it. And so basically all I've done as a writer for the past many years is keep working on that muscle. Be observant. When someone says something in a particular way, you observe that they say it in a way that's a little odd and there might be a question that you should ask that was not evident from their answer, but you know, you, you notice something about their mood or their inflection or so on. Oh my gosh, I've got to go to the bathroom. So hold on, listen to this ad, and we'll be right back. Today's show is sponsored by Howl.fm, which by now you know is an awesome comedy network likened to being the Netflix for podcasts, brought to you by the same people that bring you all your favorite Earwolf shows, including this one, Question of the Day. With Howl Premium, you get exclusive access to a brand new Howl original miniseries called Dead Presidents. In this new show... Daniel O'Brien from Crack.com sets out to solve one of the greatest mysteries of our time, figuring out why certain American presidents appear on our cash. From the humble first president George Washington on the $1 bill to the controversial Andrew Jackson on the 20 for now, the stories behind the presidents on your money are way more surprising and way crazier than your high school history teacher ever could have imagined. With Howl Premium, you also get exclusive access to more than 120 hours of new Howl original miniseries and audio documentaries like The Complete Woman, Finding the Funny with the Sklar Brothers, and Fruit. You also gain access to more than 90 comedy albums, all the archives from WTF with Mark Marin, and every episode of every Earwolf show such as Comedy Bang Bang and How Did This Get Made. Get access to all this exclusive content on your iPhone, your Android phone, and on the web for only $4.99 a month. And with the promo code QOD, as in question of the day, 
you get a full month of free trial. To redeem your promo code, make sure you create your account on the web at howl.fm and enter code QOD at checkout. That's howl, H-O-W-L dot F-M. Use the promo code QOD for a one-month free trial of Howl Premium. Now, as you've gotten older, you're not only observing all the physical surroundings and nuances, but maybe the emotional and mental right. you well, know, surroundings as well. Right. Well, I think that's the natural level that you want to get to, yeah, beyond that. And it's more nuanced and it's more fun. It's more interesting for me. But in terms of the uh, the thing, like the saying, what I liked about your question and what I liked about your answer about the difference between the the right answer and the or the real answer and the right answer. Oh, sorry. The good, the good the, reason and the real the reason. The good reason and the real reason. So the one, there was one thing. So I was about 14. There was this guy, local. He was the local barber who we knew from church and just the town. It's a small town. His name was Bernie Duskowitz. Can you send me his phone number later? I think <laughs> I need him. And I didn't know him that well, and I didn't think I had much in common with him. And he was like, you know, I think he smoked, which I didn't like being around smoke and whatnot. But, uh, you know, he was a nice guy, and he had a little boat. This was not the... There was a different guy who would take me on these longer trips way down to the ocean. This was just a guy who had a little boat who would take it on to a local lake, Bernie Duskwitz. And he said one day, hey, Steve, I'm going fishing. You want to come out with me this afternoon? So I'm like, truthfully, I probably didn't really want to, but I knew it was the right thing to say yes because I was shy and all that. So we went fishing. So you were a pleaser? I was a pleaser for sure, yeah. And obedient. I wasn't going to, you know, it would have been impolite to, to reject it. So, and I think we were probably fishing for bass. And I liked fishing as a kid, but I wasn't like a good fisherman. I wasn't that strategic or skilled. And we're out on his boat and we're fishing for like probably what felt like three hours and didn't get a single bite. Because we're using these lures that are meant to get just the right bass, the big fish, da, da, da. We're getting nothing, 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 nothing. And then uh, it clouds up. And the storm rolls in, it starts to pour, and he drives the boat over to the shore of the lake where you're sitting under the trees that are overhanging there protecting you from the rain. So while we're sitting there to wait out the storm, we start casting into the shallow water there, and all of a sudden, fish, 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 fish. But they're these little tiny like sunfish or panfish or whatever you want to call them, rock um, Something, uh, some I can't even remember the names of all these fish, but just these little bony fish that are like literally four or five inches long. But for me, it's like fun as hell to catch them because I'm a kid and it's like yeah. it's more fun to catch the little fish. Con- and then all of a sudden the storm blows over, sun comes out, and he starts up the engine to go back out to deep water for the big fish. And I'm saying, whoa, Mr. Duskowitz, you know, why don't we, uh, where are we going? This is a great spot. And he was like, ah, you know, you don't want to keep catching those little fish. They're not worth the time. And if you spend all your time catching little fish, you're never going to catch a big fish. And then we drove out to the middle, fished for another two hours, did not catch a single damn big fish. And yet I realized that I liked his philosophy that, yeah, it's fine. It's fun to catch a little fish. And maybe as a kid, I would have preferred to do that. But I think about this now all the time in every decision I make. So like, what's an example where you've used this philosophy to make, to change course on a decision? Well, probably deciding to write books years ago because I was a journalist. I had a good job. I was at the New York Times. I was an editor, but I could write whatever. And I could write article after article after article after article. And it was gratifying and I got paid for it and so on. But I thought, you know what? Um... A book is a different level of commitment, different level of skill, different level of mental engagement, a, diff- a way to grow as a human, and, a, and I want that. And so at, at some risk, 
um, you know, I left my job. I went out and became a freelancer. Did you think his philosophy when you did that? I can't say I thought about uh, him or that day, but I know that him and that day and that decision fundamentally changed the way I look about um, life and investing. You know, if you're going to invest an hour of your time in something, it should be something that might be uh, more substantial than... Let me Let me ask this, though, because it sounds like both you... And him, the guy who told you this, did something which you're not mentioning, which is, to some extent, you both mitigated risk. So he went, he didn't just go out randomly to some spot. He went out to a spot probably where he had caught big fish before. So he had done his research to say, I'm going to go to this spot as opposed to another part because I know big fish has a chance of coming here. And you spent many years as a journalist and you got you got an MFA in writing and you, you did a lot of things to mitigate the risk as opposed to just quitting your job and writing a book with no skills. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I re- really, I think the lesson that I learned is opportunity cost. It's not, it's not so much about, you know, it's about every hour or brain cell or dollar that I spend on X cannot be spent on Y. And what's the more important goal to me? Where am I going to grow more? Where am I going to uh, enjoy more? Where am I going to maybe teach more? Because I do, you know, I mean, part of the role of being a writer is to be a teacher. I don't, I don't, I don't think of it that way often because it feels like I'm not really a teacher. Like I don't really know enough to teach anybody. But I know that people do read what I write in order for them to learn. I'm sure people listen to this podcast in order for them to learn. So I think... Oh, God. God, forgive them. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, I think that um, I, I learned about... It. To me, it was a lesson in opportunity cost and that every decision you make before you say yes to something, you have to understand what you're also simultaneously saying no to. And that's uh, can be a hard, hard lesson to learn. Reminds me a little of... Uh... Charles Duhigg's new book, Faster, Better, Smarter, because in that he says you should always have what he calls a stretch goal mm-hmm. um, and then make sure all the goals underneath that are kind of moving you towards your stretch goal. And that the stretch goal itself can be so intimidating that if that's all you have there written down on the paper, you know, like, write bestseller, <laughs> it's hard to make any move toward it, whereas then you write the smaller goals that you can really accomplish. Yeah. All right, yeah. what's your stretch goal for the day then, James? For the day. Just the day. For the day, my stretch goal is to come up with, to pre-record a dozen of these excellent question of the day podcasts. And, then, and to crush you in backgammon <laughs> without you winning a single point. Oh. That, and I, I give you credit. That is a difficult stretch goal. I wish you best of luck in accomplishing your professional stretch goals. And I hope that your personal stretch goal of backgammon domination is crushed like the bug that you are. Oh, I hope you're wrong. What's the best way to show your love or loathing for question of the day? Just go to iTunes and write us a review. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe. That way you won't miss this. James, has the United States become more like New York City? Or has New York City become more like the United States? And I encourage you to interpret that as narrowly, as broadly as you want. 